Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're going to talk about compliance risk in the commodities markets. Those risks are only going up as regulators become more powerful and have greater reach and digitization creates more data for them to analyze. And it's not just about being legally compliant. With increasing focus on ESG, investors, stakeholders, and employees are holding companies more and more accountable for their actions. Being non-compliant can be an existential threat both for businesses and individuals. Businesses face market capitalization, collapses, liquidity issues, withdrawal of investors, but individuals too. At worst, can be put in jail. At best, might be named and have their careers ruined forever. Joining us to discuss compliance is Frank Hayden. Frank is Vice President of Compliance at Calpine, the U.S. utility, and also chairs the Energy Trading Compliance Discussion Group, which has over 60 companies participating. Frank's also on the CFTC's Market Risk Advisory Committee, and for compliance sake, I should say that all views expressed herein are Frank's own. Frank, thanks for joining. Uh, Thank you very much. Appreciate being here. Before we uh, dig into some of the detailed sources of compliance and the consequences of not being compliant, can you just put some definitions around what we mean by compliance in this sector? Okay, so yeah, so compliance in this sector refers to following the rules of engagement. And uh, there are lots of different regulators involved with the energy in the United States. You have the CFTC, you have FERC, you have uh, you know state uh, state regulators. You have uh, market monitors with the uh, various ISOs and RTOs. And so, at the first step, it's really understanding those rules and how to make sure that you don't uh, go sideways or, or cross the line, if you will. The second step to it is really understanding your standards and abiding by them. I think when you when you set out and you kind of look at how you build your organization and how you put together a brand, if you will, there's a certain amount of core values and standards that you kind of set out internally within your within your group. And so obviously compliance is following those standards as well. So on one hand, you have the legal framework. And on the other hand, you have your own internal expectation on what it means to align to the goals and values of your company. So I think that's that's kind of where compliance sits right now. Yeah. And the consequences of being non-compliant are huge, both from a, obviously from the legal framework standpoint, but also actually for organizations themselves having individuals or, or selection of individuals not following the, 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 the policies as well. Yeah, let's jump into that real quick. There's huge downside uh, personally to uh, non-compliance. I mean, everything from, uh, you know, going to jail, for an example, just, you know, destroying your reputation could be another one. So from that level, it's the first and the last thing you think about when you run a business. You're, you're very keenly aware that the reputation, that your name, that your credentials are at risk. And I think that, you know, one of the, the key things to kind of understand from an organization point of view is the market capitalization question. Uh, 
you know, I think that when you, when you get involved with uh, activity that's shady and you, uh, you know, have a reputational uh, problem, your market cap can suffer pretty materially. And uh, that has impacts on funding, has impacts on capital, has impacts on on how you manage your business and manage your trades that you have going on, right? So I think that's that's a key aspect as well to to really think about when you when you focus on this legal thing. And and you know, it starts out fairly tight. In other words, it, you really worry about your own ecosystem. But as you expand globally, there's more complexity that gets layered in. And, you know, as you expand globally, you start addressing or having different compliance uh, pinch points that you really need to think about. And those require you to really go back to your core values and how you how you make those decisions. Yeah. So you've got on the one hand, as an individual, you've got these, you know, the, the risk of being named at the very least, which can effectively end your career you know if you become googleable basically all the way through to obviously jail and that, that has happened and for the for the entity themselves you've got certainly the impacts on market capital capitalization access to 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 funding and these incredible fines as well i mean the the scale are enormous you know 900 million dollars you know a, a recent one um so you know it, the 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 downside is significant and as you mentioned there as well this is also being overlaid with increasing complexity because of the commodities world is global um you've got multiple jurisdictions one thing you said to me which i i think was a really poignant point it was you're also it, it, this is somewhat you know asymmetric warfare in that if you get in the sights as an individual of a regulator you know there's very little um you, you know they have very deep pockets yeah, I mean, for sure, there's there's a money problem, right? I mean, you know, for sure, the regulator has infinite capital, and uh, they can pursue you to drain your bank account uh, pretty easily. And uh, often, you know, you you try to come back with a surrender, and you say, hey, okay, I'll you know, I'll I'll cough up and confess. And, you know, the, the number you're thinking you're, you're looking at, it's, you know, the number they come back to you at is 2x of what you're originally thinking. So, so I think that, you know, for sure, it's a very drawn out process. And, and what kind of makes it, you know, what, what, what's interesting here, you know, is that the whole world is digitizing, right? And d- data is becoming more and more fungible and it's becoming more and more common. And the net is getting uh, pretty well put together on understanding how the pieces inter interact. Well, with that comes more and more questions, and you know it's not unheard of for the regulator to come out and ask you a question about the data. Well, that interaction is not an easy interaction to have because, you know, particularly here. In the United States, uh, you know, you have a duty of candor. You have a responsibility to tell the whole story and to explain it clearly and succinctly. And it's tough enough to explain to your, you know, the chef that you're at, what restaurant you're at, well, how you like your steak. <laughs> you know, it, it's more difficult 
to explain it to a regulator what a particular trade is or what your intention really was. And so that creates a, a, a gotcha moment in the fact that if the regulator feels like you've been misrepresenting uh, the facts or the fact pattern, uh, they, they, there's a law against that, right? So, so the, 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 the penalties increase, they don't decrease. And so it's a very awkward, it's a, you know, it's an awkward conversation. And, and for sure, as, as the data analytics improves, there's more and more people asking questions about, well, what was this or what can you explain this to me? And that presents a, a compliance moment or compliance problem, if you will. Adding to that, I guess, that complexity. So that's, that's the legal framework. I just very quickly want to touch, and I know this gets into business, business ethics and business cultures, but there is formulated its own compliance or, or framework for behaviors and actions, which presumably is going to typically be quite far ahead of where the baseline of the legal framework stands. Actually, it's important for organizations as well to be aware of individuals are breaching that particular code as well. Why is that? Your, your company recruits a certain type of person for a certain reason, right? And that reason being, hey, this is this is our brand. This is how we 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 present ourselves in the market. And you know, non-compliance with that has impacts uh, to the company brand. And we're seeing this a lot in the ESG side right now. We're seeing that you know that if you're not adhering to the social aspect or the governance aspect of of that brand then in fact, it impacts capital, it impacts funding, it impacts uh, your ability to uh, transact, if you will, in the market. And so, so I think that, yes, the legal ramifications are huge. Uh, I do think, though, that the, the upside from being compliant, the upside from having uh, you know, well-articulated core values, uh, the upside to to adhering to those value system actually adds value to the enterprise. Um, and it doesn't just add value from the outside looking in. There's also an uplift internally with, with regards to operational efficiency. Because if, you know, let's just take a typical trade floor that has uh, errors inputting deals, right? Uh, if you can, you know, encourage a compliant environment where these errors can be eliminated, then in fact, you have greater operational efficiency, which brings in other capabilities. From a talent attraction standpoint, being able to reassure current and future employees that your systems are going to protect them from potential compliance issues, given the personal downsides is also huge as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the moniker that you use in compliance is, is basically three letters. It's PDR, right? It's, it's prevent, detect, and remediate. And so if you're able to kind of manage the prevention side and, uh, you know, for sure the, the, the front office employee isn't wearing that risk because he feels it's adequately being prevented from occurring. And so there's there's a little bit of a relaxation on how much you know how much that risk costs him when he when he sizes up the opportunity for himself, right? I think we've we've got a good feeling of the intensity of how serious an issue this is. Um, you know, this is when work can truly impact your personal life uh, in a very very negative way. And as you as you alluded to, 
so where are the sources of what's driving people and even businesses to to not be compliant can can you sort of pick apart that for us a little bit well i think it's it's the thought that uh i need to make money you know there was there was a survey i believe it was e and y back in uh, 2016 there was a fraud survey and in that survey 42 percent of the 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 participants said they could justify uh, unethical behavior to meet a financial target. Okay, and so that's pretty shocking when you think about just the human nature aspect of it, that the pressure to make money, well, the feeling is, well, I have to cut corners. I have to, uh, I have to behave in a non-compliant manner to make an extra buck. And I think that's, I, th- I think that's, not correct right i mean you know from my 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 point of view i think that's a that's a fallacy that gee i have to i have to behave in this way to kind of make money you know i have to i do think that the more veteran you are in the business the more you realize that less is more like you don't you don't need to uh explain a lie to get someone to transact or to make a profit right you just have to present the bid and the offer and say you know and assuming they're a willing willing to transact at the bid or at the offer you can you can still get your business done right so it's incentives so i mean i guess to to sort of take that conversation a bit broader you you typically in the trading world you've got people whose compensation is directly linked to the the performance the the profit the pnl that they drive and certainly their future prospects are attached to that um, so you've got a huge incentive to both make money and get rewarded, but also not be, you know, put it colloquially fired for not for non-performance. But in some senses, I, I guess what you're saying is is probably also a miscalculation of risk because whilst perhaps the chances are relatively slim, although we're about to come on to arguing that those chances are are increasing exponentially of being caught given the data now available and sort of forecasting and analysis and so forth, that you're unlikely to get caught but frankly the downsides of getting caught as people will attest to is are infinitesimally worse than losing your job um so in some ways it's a bit of a miscalculation of incentives but it definitely comes down to i think as you say there's lots of incentives and human nature will, will be driven by that to perhaps act in this way but it also seems to be and this is i think this is a little dated um because of recent trends but also businesses themselves have in the past positioned themselves on if you know a compliance spectrum because that's a competitive advantage for them whether that means that they were doing business in locations countries with national with um, countries that perhaps had different lower compliance standards or whatever it might be that enabled them to compete differently to say uh, an organization that has stakeholders who would forbid such behavior and so on so there's kind of there's the individual level there's can you talk to that business level a little bit yeah so so on that point uh yeah i think if you would roll back the clock you know to you know 1990s early 2000s and whatever i think there's a lot of thought about you know how where can i gain an advantage and you know some of that advantage you know we we we've seen it through you know labor laws right we've seen people say well gee i can i can hire you know some people in in another country 
to you know assemble my garments for an example um, and they they kind of skirt the particular issue that they're dealing with in country um, and i think that the 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 mistake there is if you ask them their core values uh, they would not they would they wouldn't come up with that answer right they would say no I think that our, our core values is, you know, our brand is built this way and, you know, people perceive us as, 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 you know, responsible, you know, ethical business practices. If they found out that we were in fact exporting, you know, our, our product abroad to kind of be made by, you know, slave labor, if you will, they would play out very poorly for us. I think that, you know, that is becoming a harder sell point, uh, you know, uh, you know, there there are folks out there that, you know, their their kids are are asking them, hey, you know, why are you know how are you behaving ethic ethically with, uh, you know, carbon for an example. I think that you know the trend we're seeing is is a trend toward digitization and a trend toward data, and what it really means is that everything becomes discoverable. Okay, and so the idea that you can kind of gain a competitive advantage by, uh, you know, doing a regulatory ARB, uh, it, it doesn't play out that well, especially with the ESG framework that's out there, right? So, so I think that's one of the, the the important trends we're seeing. I mean, we're not just seeing a trend toward data analysis and and you know review of of you know behaviors we're also seeing a trend from the you know credit rating agencies to you know evaluate a company holistically and a holistic view is an environmental view it's a social view and it's a governance view and i think that that sort of competitive advantage is no longer a competitive advantage it becomes more of a of a liability in the sense that the data is coming together. Like uh, I think you, you and I, Paul, were talking, you know, a little while back about, you know, in 1990, there wasn't a lot of memorandums of understandings between the different agencies. Uh, there was not a lot of data analysis being done. And so in theory, uh, the net was pretty loose and you might have been able to do some stuff that you probably couldn't do today. Now, I think if you if you throw that same behavior today, and let's assume it's ethical behavior, let's assume it's not it's not uh, it's not bad behavior. It's it's good behavior. Well, even with good behavior, you're going to get a lot of questions asked, and I think the the questioning the question being asked, it's an important it's important to be able to to answer it, you know, honestly, holistically and and promptly uh and i don't think that uh you know the 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 half answer is going to make the regulator go away i think that i think that you need to be able to provide a complete answer to those sorts of questions yeah and there's a trail to it as well right i mean one of the other things that we're seeing is yeah actions that happened a decade ago uh, is still being investigated the statute of limitations, if there are some, are still quite long, and everything remains 
discoverable because it sits in in digital formats. I, I want to just one other source before we move on to, I guess, what, what's meant to be the, the guts of this, which is about actually managing compliance and some of the new technologies that are coming in um, that really take it from kind of a backward-looking process to a forward-looking process. I just want to very quickly touch on there is also kind of being non-compliant inadvertently, right? And And some of that's because the regulations frequently change, especially here in the United States. There can be a lack of understanding within the administration itself or the regulators about, you know, the actual industry. Some of these, you know, power markets are incredibly complex. Um, and there's a lack of case law as well around some of these um, regulations that can also mean that it's not always black and white what is compliant and what isn't from a legal framework and i guess that's somewhat down to the judgment call of the compliance officer but but that is also a factor as well yes you're right uh the regulations are easy to understand and they are they can be very unclear at times and we often look to case law to really understand how to interpret them right and so so i think the and as you push out from from a local view to a more global view the complexity only increases. And one of the things, you know, an interesting thing to kind of recognize in this in this space is that there is no such thing as double jeopardy. You can be hit hit up by every single agency out there and you can be pursued. So so you don't necessarily just because you resolve an issue with the exchanges doesn't mean that you don't have an, an issue with the CFTC. Just because you solve an issue with the CFTC doesn't mean you don't have an issue with the Department of Justice. And so that that elevates the, the importance of the whole of the whole situation. And so training is critical, right? I mean, uh, making sure that they are aware, you know, the, the they're you know, that they they kind of think about these these issues up front. Like, you know, a lot of commercial folks don't necessarily think that gee, you know, buying a expensive bottle of wine at a at an outing could in fact create a a problem, you know, a compliance problem. Um, you know, so I think that it, it's it's important that you consider the whole gamut. Um, and with the training, uh, your core values of your company become absolutely uh, important. And because they will cover off where there's no rules and there's no regulations, right? So, so if 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 your core value is, let's say, for an example, you know, ethical behavior, well, that's culturally defined, right? That that the, you know, having having that as a core value, well, it sounds great, but depending on what culture you're talking to, uh, there's different uh practice with regards to what that is right and so so i don't necessarily recommend a lofty high level core value i recommend something more more measurable so moving on you've got big downsides big upside how has trying to manage compliance changed over the last decade or so because i think there's been some rapid changes in, in how organizations can, have gone about thinking about compliance. Companies recognize the risk, right? And and they struggle with how do we address the risk? And, you know, so I think step one 
is to get away from the reactive mindset into a proactive mindset, right? So I think that's step one. And with that proactive mindset, you're kind of recognizing that compliance encompasses my reputation. So what is reputation? Reputation is the, is the granddaddy bucket that holds your credit risk, your market risk, your operational risk, your legal risk, in your compliance risk, right? It all it all sits there underneath reputation. And with reputation brings in your your access to the markets, your access to funding, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think that the first step is really to recognize that I can own this. I, I can do something about this. I can be proactive, right? So let's first, before we go to the proactive, let's look at what the reactive model is. The reactive model is, is you basically run some reports, you basically check boxes, and basically you wait for the regulator to call. And then when the regulator calls, you run the gamut and get the data and you produce the evidence and you discuss and you write a check and the problem's gone. Now, in the early 90s, uh, the Department of Justice kind of understood this was a problem. And so they put together the idea that, hey, if you do certain things, you can actually get your fine reduced. Okay, now it's been well refined since then to where we are today. But if there's certain things that you're doing, you can mitigate some of the tail risk with respect to the fine. So that becomes the first thing as you as you cross over from a reactive mode to a proactive mode. And, and that hinges on this idea of what they call an effective compliance program. So you can have a lot of great ideas and if they're not tangible, being done type of boots on the ground type of, of, of work, they'll still say that you're not an effective compliance program. And, and literally, if you, if you go through these fines that are out there, you'll, you can read these cases where they had great processes and they were not effective. Like, Enron's an obvious example, right? Enron's ethics book was well-written, well-thought-of. Outside law firms put it together. Pretty comprehensive. But in the end, it wasn't worth the paper it was printed on, right? Because no one listened to it. No one followed it, right? So, so I think that you know, as you move from a reactive model to a proactive model, then you start saying, okay, I want to be on top of my business. I want to run reports. I want to kind of look at the data. Well, you start realizing that the data is very, has a lot of variation to it. There's structured data that comes out of your trading systems. There's unstructured data that's found in your communications and your, in your phone calls. And there's a need to figure out how to pull this together and understand it, right? So one of the big steps you make as you go from a reactive model to a proactive model is you start realizing that you're unable to control the number of exceptions you identify, okay? So if you go back, looking, looking back to the proactive model, you get a sample of some exceptions. You make sure that the population is you know, consistent, homogeneous population. You identify a confidence level you want to have. You sample that population. You clear 
that sample and the entire population is healthy at that point, right? So, so sample of a thousand, you you review your fifty, and you didn't find any problems in the fifty, and so all thousand are good, right? Well, you can manage that sort of workflow because you can control statistically, you know, how you sample, right? When you s- switch over to the data analytics world, you really have no control over the number of exceptions you find. And I think one of the most telling stories about this is that, you know, when FERC publishes their uh, their year-end uh, review of, of enforcement, they highlight how many exceptions they identify. And I think like in power last year, they had over 300,000 exceptions. Then you then they go on to explain how many were actually referred to and, and you know, cases where charges were filed, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the fact is, you get an avalanche of data coming at you every day. And so this brings in the need to start uh, figuring out a way to process this and understand it, which tends to, so if you look at the the life cycle of this, okay, you you bring the data in, you say, oh gee, I wanna look for this. And let's say you wanna look for, uh, uh, we could pick a behavior. Uh, Let's say you wanna look for uh, spoofing, okay? And you say, well, I wanted to find a spoof as uh, uh, a buy, and a cancel on a pair of trades. Now the question is, well, what's your time limit? Five seconds, five minutes, two seconds? What are you looking at, right? And then that kind of ties into, well, what's the liquidity of the market? You know, how, how liquid is the market here? Maybe, maybe in fact, my spoofing parameter for illiquid market needs to be five minutes long. And maybe my spoofing parameter for highly liquid market only needs to be two seconds apart, right? So. So it really depends on how you look at it, which in, again, brings in more data analytics to it, right? And as you build it out, you try to understand what it is, and then you have to process it and score it and look at it. Now, flip over to you know, communications. <clears throat> you, know, you have the same sort of problem there, right? You're using a lexicon to identify you know, uh, particular communications that you think could be problematic. And now you have to figure out a way to review these and score these and understand, is there a particular issue for the company that you can help mitigate or remediate, if you will, right? For sure, prevent. But um, that becomes a part of the process as well. So so as you look at this, this life cycle, you know, the first step is, you know, acquiring the data. Second stamp, stamp step is trying to figure out how to bring the data together consistently to be reviewed and looked at. And then the third step becomes, well, how do you process all this data? How do you, how do you uh, stay on top of the workflow? Because the workflow can, can, can crush you and defeat this effort to become an effective compliance program. Right. So if I can, you know, paraphrase, so you'll, you'll, the, the reactive is what we've, we've always had, right? Someone raises an issue and it gets investigated post fact um the the problem you know as you as you move to more of a forecasting or preventing issues before they become so significant they can you know destroy reputations or take down the company you're using data analytics and all things data analytics the issue isn't getting the data that's that's easy the issue is designing what questions you're going to ask of it 
and making sure those questions are giving you something valuable because yeah in in the in the broad course of human history you know human behavior during the day you're going to get you know someone sends an email that you know, whatever uh is is has a certain uh, lexicon in it that triggers a response but you don't want to shut down working operations if that just is a normal you know blip or part of it just of an anomaly um so it's you know asking questions of it and and i guess this is this is essentially organizations wanting to um to to sort of prevent things at source and and take advantage of this data analytics um is how widespread i mean is, is what organizations are doing or is this uh is this only for the very large organizations kind of what's your sort of sense of where the industry is at as a whole when it comes to applying the best of data analytics and forecasting to compliance challenges well i think it's a i think it's a very nascent area uh you know for sure you know large financial institutions are grappling with this problem right i mean you know a lot of a lot of companies are trying to figure out how do I get better at this? I mean, the the oil drilling companies, you know, they they you know they they look at it as well from a from a FCPA perspective. So so I think there there's a whole converging going on. Like, how do I address compliance in, a, in an increasingly complex world? Uh, you know, I'm aware of a, of a particular company that what they do is they use the GPS off your phone, and depending on what you know, regime you're in, you're where you where you are, what country you're in, they'll send you a text message and say, "Hey, these are the rules of engagement. This is the this is the particular compliance regs you need to worry about." Right? There's other companies that will go through and they'll take a look at your your calendar invite and see who you're having uh, meetings with, and they'll run it against a uh, you know a prohibited uh, name list, you know, OFLAC list to kind of understand. If in fact this is someone they should be uh, they should be meeting with, right? Uh, so I think that you know uh, the key is is uh, a lot of companies are grappling with this right now, uh, and no one really has the answer. Uh, I guess looking looking forwards, um, this seems like a, uh, a an issue, um, and I and I I agree entirely that it's. We've also kind of moved from the CR, CSR world to the ESG world, which is much more measurable, much more precise, much more, I think, impactful on business operations. But we're going to this, you know, we look forward, you've got increasing prevalence of data and availability and democratization of data. You've got obviously better tools to kind of forecast and predict behaviors. But you've also got increasing globalization, increasing power of regulators, you know, who've been infinitely empowered compared to 20 years ago. The ESG piece is bringing in NGOs and external standards that organizations need to be compliant with. It seems like this is going to get big and big quickly, you know, for organizations as, as we go into this next decade. Can you just give us your two cents on kind of the future of compliance? I think what we'll see as as we proceed here is you know active shareholders ngos you know access to capital markets i think they will start looking at the holistic pieces of of the esg framework and try to really understand the governance the social aspects of it as well as the you know the environmental seat piece from a doer perspective 
uh, I think data analytics is here to stay. Uh, we see today memorandums of understanding between the different regulatory authorities where information is being shared, where, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't have that. You didn't have that information being shared. Now you do. And you're seeing them put together a fabric, a quilt, if you will, of the different data pieces. And I think from a, from a, a, a doer perspective, you know, mimicking that internally, understanding that. So, so, so let's say for an example, you actually put this all together and you, you feel like you have the same data analytics suite the regulator has. Well, the one piece of information you have that the regulator doesn't have access to is the communications that go on around it, you know, what that, what the intent is, how it's really understood. And so I think the a big piece uh, to be worked on is understanding the, how to how to mine that out. Now you, you do you are seeing that in some hedge fund activity where they're looking at Twitter feeds and are trying to understand market sentiment versus you know where versus you know to predict price directions, right? I think there's going to be a bleed over of that into this area, right? I think I think people are going to really try to understand, well, what does that really mean? If I could use natural language processing to really understand intent better, then in fact I could I could better understand the wrapper that all this data is uh, nested inside of, right? And so I think that that becomes a, a, a key thing. So, so, you know, to kind of answer the question, uh, for sure it's not gonna go away. And for sure the, the, the trend we're seeing in the digitalization of the business is having deep, is making deep inroads into the compliance area. And it's causing or creating a need to dashboard, measure, and report out, which with those measurable metrics, change behavior internally so that companies become more compliant, right? And so so I think that is a, a key thing. And I think that, you know, one of the things I like to see happen in the business is I like to see the the compliance functions start gearing more toward the traders as opposed to the compliance professionals. So, so let me explain what, what I mean there. So a lot of the compliance software out there in the market, it's really geared toward the compliance analyst and it's really geared toward the compliance professional. It's not geared to the commercial area. And I think that if you could in fact gear this to the commercial area, I think you'll get some real changes in behavior. And, and the example I use when I talk to folks is, you know, the school zone sign, right? Like when you're driving in a school zone, you have everything you need to know to control your speed. You have gas, you have brakes, you have a speedometer. Everything you need to know is there in front of you so you can control your speed. Yet a sign flashing outside your car showing you the, the the speed that you're traveling causes you to slow down right it causes you to to you know to not be driving fast and i think that is critical so i think that one of the things i i see happening in this compliance area especially with the use of mobile technology is i see that feedback loop being presented 
to the commercial leads such that they're able to learn much like you know learning a car learns to drive so they can learn that these this is a trip hazard i need to be this is a compliance moment i need to really understand what this means right now right and so i think that is a big piece and and one of the ways to effectuate that is to adopt a risk approach to compliance and that doesn't necessarily mean a risk like gee this has the largest fine this is my largest risk it it it, it basically involves taking an ecosystem viewpoint toward the toward the compliance risk itself right so so if you think about uh, uh let's say you're trading new york you know new york has uh its own ecosystem and you know there's a position that sits there there's a there's a weather that's unique to it and there is um you know uh, you know a counterparty name attached to it if you will now similarly uh the trader that traded that uh he has his own ecosystem his ecosystem could be his var for the day it could be his credit limits for the day it could be how many uh position violations he's had. Um, you know, his ecosystem is is somewhat different than this trading, than this positions ecosystem. And this could, in fact, overlap with another ecosystem, right? But the point is, is that, you know, there, there's several overlapping risk that concurrently could mean you have compliance problems, right? And so I think that's where it's going. You know, if you ask me, what, it, what where's the trend taking us? I think the trend's taking us in that direction. Frank, it's been a fascinating discussion. I think that it is a probably and is an ongoing discussion about how organizations are going to manage what is only becoming a more, well, an increasingly complex risk to their business as it globalizes and as there's more data available and there's more regulation out there. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and spending some time with us. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoy being a guest here on the HC Insider Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.